Ladies and gentlemen, hello out there in the big wide world where parts steadily open. The time has come to sit back and have your favorite brew situated right next to your ether. Speaking of, I'm betting you have a docking station so you can listen to this. It's okay, I can wait. If you do so, you'll get better audio quality and you can play it loud. Let me count down. Three, two, Come now, I'm giving you time so you can place your favorite iPod or whatever device it is into your docking station. Come on, move it, move it, move it. Again, three, two, one. Okay, that's it. Chris Nell talking. Hi there again. With nothing major to announce, I'd just like to take a moment to thank each and every one of you folks for streaming us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, Amazon Music, and especially... A special thank you goes out to the folks at Podcast One for taking this year to their shores. All these outlets, if you have not known by now, will also house my radio show called The Tempo Tavern, airing Thursdays on the Bulldog Radio Network, 5 to 8 p.m. local time. In it, I just play music and I curate here and there in between. Maybe I tell a joke or two, play a soundbite. It all depends on my mood and I don't want to tick you off. But if you can't make the live show, give us round about 24 to 48 hours and the full show will be up and running on the podcast to download on all these outlets I've mentioned. That's Apple Podcasts, Audible, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Podcast One. Do it now. Enjoy the tunes. I think we're in our third episode running. But self-promotion now aside, today's guest incoming. Saya Nelson is a honeyed sweetheart from the Mountain West region, a mum and fitness enthusiast as well as up-and-coming drug counsellor. In our chat to follow, she talks about growing up in a family of six, how drinking took her life into overdrive to a tailspin, and her life afterward in recovery. This girl is raw, honest, and mildly self-deprecating, a lovely sense of humor to boot. Saya has even appeared on some of my buddies' podcasts, namely Elevated with Steve Matthews, and is also closely tied to Big Jim Hernandez of Valor Fitness Clothing. Check out Saya's Instagram handle featuring her take on life, s.nelson42. That's s.nelson42, and you can read Honest Commentary and even see Sayers muscle tissue popping progress. By osmosis, if you'd like to come on this show, please do. You're invited. You can write me an email. It is info at Chris Nell. My last name is Dual Els, remember? .co.za. Follow me on Instagram at Chris Nell Media, radio acting music. My Facebook handle is Chris Nell. And my website, www.chrisnell.co.za. If you'd like to book me for any media you got cooking or you'd like me to make an appearance, hit me up. We'll work you out a great quote and you'll get extra bang for your buck, mega value for your money. If you have a movie, a TV show, a TV program you'd like me to host, voiceover, MC work, I'm all down for it, please. I'd love to make your next production a complete success. So with all that out of the way, let's head on down to Colorado for a second time to have a cuppa with the amiable and absolutely lovely Saya Nelson. This portion of the show is being brought to you by The Best Things in Life, which are still free with minimum purchase at participating dealers. Hello, 
for our feature presentation. Nothing like the finest selection. Nothing like the open road. Let's see where it leads me. My name is Chris Nell. In a burgeoning career spanning half a decade, I've done a bit of everything. I've walked the boards on the stage. I've essayed emotions and intention down the barrel of a lens, and I've kept the public on its toes through the coil of a mic. Now, I've entered the world of podcasting. During my quest, there's many questions that need an answer. There are many voices yearn to be heard, and many stories aching to be told. I want to hear them all. I'm a vagabond with an insatiable curiosity. Now I'm hitting the road. Welcome to my journey. invited to hear the stories and the views of people spanning the globe. You'll be taken places through the odyssey of your imagination, from the palm trees of California to the Everglades of Florida, the prairie hills of Alberta and the cathedrals of Montreal and beyond. Come along as we discover the hidden truths to matters of the heart, matters that knowledgeable people share. Artists, activists, advocates, and survivors. They share because they care. People like you and me. Join me as we learn what makes them tick. Sit back and strap yourself in. We're having a cuppa.
Sam Nelson. I'm betting that John Denver must have written Rocky Mountain High in your honor. Am I right? <laughs> I don't know about that, but I love that song. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Great to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's truly a pleasure. And uh, I think we also need to give a big thank you to Big Jim, because if it wasn't for Jim Hernandez, I think I wouldn't have found you any other way else, to tell you the honest truth. <laughs> so, Jim, if you're listening to this, we love you dearly, brother. So, say, uh, I look at you right now, and I say this to a lot of my guests who have been here before, but I can see life in your eyes. It radiates through you. But before there was life, there was dark. And in a no uncertain time, I'd like to know, how did your dark days begin? Well, you know, it's interesting, Chris, that you said that about the eyes. One thing I reflect and refer to now in sobriety is looking back at old pictures and seeing my eyes and mm. seeing the darkness and the emptiness and you know, there's that quote, the eyes are the window to the soul. Oh, and, yeah. And those pictures show where my soul was empty and dark and hollow. And that's why I, sometimes I'll share a side-by-side -side picture because the the eyes just don't lie. Eyes, the, yeah. eyes for, the eyes tell how you're feeling and tell how I'm feeling. And um, it's just amazing. Um, right. So I grew up, I am the fifth of six girls. Really? I, yes. Big family. <laughs> yes. And people usually follow that up with no brothers. I'm like, no, no brothers. I typically would mention if I had brothers. <laughs> um, <laughs> always, that's always, whenever I say the fifth of six girls, they're like, Oh, boys, I'm like, yes, I just don't mention them. <laughs> well, if you ask a stupid question, you're going to get a stupid answer. So Yes, right. <laughs> I try not to give too many stupid answers because then people don't ask questions. But so I grew up. <laughs> well, you bested me. I give it to you. So I, I grew up in the uh, northwest, northwest of Chicago, so mm -hmm. about 45 minutes north. Um, I usually say I had a typical, pretty typical childhood upbringing, um, though I don't know honestly how typical in hindsight and in doing step work and um, some real deep therapeutic work, how typical growing up in a house with seven women could be. You know, there was a lot of noise, a lot of uh, just constant motion which I think led me into adulthood to to feel almost like my worthiness was in how busy and going and full my plate was. Were you raised like by some was, parents? No, my parents were married until 2004 and they got divorced. Um, okay, of course. I learned um, when I was growing up that my dad was allergic to alcohol and I didn't hear a description or um, anything really further on that until I got into recovery and, and really understood what that meant. Mm. And I think the more I've done this work and um, just kept moving on, I have learned that that's probably why I share so much of my recovery with my kids. Mm. I have three kids. My oldest is 19. 
my daughter's 15 and my youngest will be 11 on Friday. Congratulations. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's crazy to see him and, and think he was just this tiny little baby and now he's not. They all have your eyes. <laughs> Yeah, you know, they I they told me on Mother's Day, my youngest said, I think you have maybe two or three more Mother's Day days where you're the tallest and not the shortest. <laughs> my my oldest is six <laughs> My daughter just passed me up and my youngest is right about here. So I'm like, Oh thank you, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'll hang on to that for another couple mother's days. Kids say <laughs> the darndest things, don't they? Yes. Uh and that you know my relationships um, with all three of my kids, it, honestly, I, I, I literally and physically speaking would not have the relationships I have with them today mm. had it not been for sobriety and recovery. Um, sobriety and recovery are different to me. Sobriety is merely staying sober, which is difficult. It's tough. But recovery for me is is working a program of recovery every single day, living in recovery, Man. not just white knuckling it through sobriety or through another day of not drinking. And that was how I really felt when I first came into sobriety. So I've really tried to kind of keep that distinction, I think, in my head where um, I, I want to live a life of recovery and not just be a dry drunk because then mm. all of those thinking and character defects and all of those thoughts would still be there for me and mm. i i just can't function that way so well i didn't so I, I grew up playing sports i played basketball volleyball and softball i didn't i didn't really drink in high school um, i didn't want to get in trouble so that i couldn't play so that mm. was kind of my deterrent um Right after high school, I started working full time. And I think that was really when everything just kind of kicked into high gear. And I worked at a country club, so uh, there was liquor all over and I was 17. Hmm. And it was like, after I took that first drink, I instantly became funnier and um uh, you know, all of these things I thought I always wanted to be all of a sudden came out. Mm. And uh, I had my oldest when I was 20. So really um, looking back on my story, I think my 20s, I had a, my oldest at 20, my daughter at 24 and my youngest at 28. So I think my 20s were really having kids, raising kids, mm. working and really being a mom. Right. And I think when I turned 30, from about 30 to 33, um, we moved to the Denver area when I was 33. I think when I, between that time, I kind of just lost who I was. I was hanging out with the wrong people again, people I'd known in high school. I was staying out until seven in the morning on a Friday night, Saturday morning. Um, and uh, my husband at the time would, you know, would say, where where have you been? I'm like, who cares? I've been with the kids all week. I've, t I, you know, I'm working full time. I took care of them. I get to have this time for me. I deserve this time. Mm. 
and it just increasingly became worse. Um, we had the opportunity to move out here for a job for him. And prior to that, I was in school full time. And when we moved, I had to wait a year to gain residency and all of that. Hmm. So we moved here in August of 2014. My sobriety date is April 10th of 2015. So it was a quick eight month downward spiral. Um, I was isolated here. I didn't know anyone. I didn't need to know anyone. I had no family out here. My family was all back in Chicago at the time. So a thousand miles away. And I think um, being able to reflect a little and see that it really was an intentional geographic uh, is a big part of it for me. Oh yeah. And at the, at the same time, being able to recognize and hear get from other people, get feedback from other people, um, like Steve, who is a great friend who I've met through Instagram. When Steve I did Matthews. his, yeah, when I did yeah, his he's podcast, on the podcast. Yeah, he's so great. When I did his podcast, he said to me, "I think God had you move out there into His beauty and nature and country and area, so that you could truly start your life over." That's Steve. That's Steve. I had never, that was only maybe a year ago. So I was five years sober. And I remember hearing him say that. And it like, obviously stuck with me. But I think I had never really looked at it that way. I looked at it from when we moved, this happened to me. And then this happened to me. And then I was alone and, you know, stuck in that pity party cycle. That rut. Yeah. And, and for me, today even, that's just not a healthy place for me to be. And and I've noticed when I model that positive side of things, even with my kids, you know, oh, I have homework. Okay, well, what can you learn from it? And not in a Pollyanna way, like everything mm. should be great. Don't you love yeah. homework? And he's like, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, yeah, totally. But I think like, um, just helping them see the bright side of things because the world is so full of negativity anyway. Oh, dude, so don't tell me. My, um, my ex-husband confronted me on Friday morning, April 10th, and he had two large bags full of empty vodka bottles and said, you need to do three things or I'm taking the kids and going back to Chicago. You need to go to rehab, you need to go to meetings, and you need to talk to a counselor or we're gone. And I won't ever, I hope I won't ever forget that feeling of looking him in the eyes and saying, you will never take my kids from me, never. And so from that day, thank God, and truly by only the grace of God and and the fellowship, the, the real friends and people I've met uh, I have not had a drink since that morning. So I think for me that um, that darkness was really so much more in isolation than anyone else could see. You know, I could put on this, I, I did this Lego club at my daughter's school when we first moved here. And I would walk there with a, a big tumbler full of vodka with like half of you know, a little tiny shot of Gatorade. Gee whiz. 
And, and I look back on those things and think, no one knew, nobody really knew how, how hurting I was, how much I was struggling, how lost and alone I felt. And I think that that, it, for me today, is why I share my recovery out loud so much because I'll get messages from people to, that say, gosh, I felt exactly that same way or I'm stuck. And and just to know that you don't have to be alone. So I think in the long story short part of that, um, the darkness for me was so internal. I didn't have and don't have a lot of those yet. I have a friend here who's got, um, about 38 years of sobriety and he would say you know yet stand for you're eligible to and that means you pick up a drink today and tomorrow you could have a dui and be in jail oh, so yeah. you, you are not excluded from those simply because you haven't been there yet so i think it helps me to stay in today and stay in recovery every day when I share and listen because I'm allowing people to let me be of service and then I, I'm allowing them in to be of service to me. Mm, I hear you. If there's two highlights that I've just heard, number one is you're eligible to, which I love dearly. Um, I've shared with a couple of people as well. You know, we have survived a lengthy term of addiction and in the bedrock of doing our 12 steps and um, in the fellowship as you quite rightly mentioned there can't be a better word than that the camaraderie and you start to lay down the defenses you start to face demons in the past that you never even thought were there initially but as you start to do your inventory and you start to do the introspection you start to have to face those those facts of trauma, abandonment, uh, abuse in all its various forms, which I find a lot of times is the foundation a lot of times for addiction, because that's exactly what happened in my case. But also those demons can prove existential, where you are trying your best to keep your best foot forward and you are militant in, a, in avoidance of, of substances and that. But then just one fine day, something can go wrong like that. So you said that it was a case of your ex-husband confronted you and said, it's either this or I'm taking the children away. So that was more or less your, I'm going to say it in inverted commas, your bottom to help you get sober, right? Yeah, I think, um, and again, going back to the yes part, I think that's one thing I share a lot. when. When I first sat down in one of my very first meetings, I remember looking around the room and thinking, I am not like you. I didn't do what you've done. I, your story is so different than mine. Guilty. Good, good God, I did not do that. <laughs> and, and, you know, and then, and then I, my favorite page, one of my very favorite pages in the book is page 17. Mm -hmm. There is a solution. First of all, just that title. I Hearing that title, it was like, there's a solution? There's a solution to this, and it's not found at the bottom of a Tito's bottle? Really? Like, there's or a solution. Receiving end light. of a rail or yeah. the lighting end of a joint, yada, yada, yada. 
So it talks about how we are people who normally would not mix all different economic groups, statuses, colors, races, all of that, ages. And yet here we are with a commonality, the, the joyousness, the, you know, we can join in harmonious action. Correct. And that was what I needed to hear. I needed to hear that no matter what brought you here, no matter what your rock bottom was, no matter what elevator floor you got off on, we are all here right now. I think exactly where we need to be. Together. By, by God's divine intervention, we are all Amen. brought here together to share something. And what is that something? That something is a life in recovery. That life that is our experience, strength, and hope so that we can help another struggling alcoholic in and out of the rooms of recovery, whatever that looks like for people. So often it can be challenging as well in the beginning because you don't know your ass from your elbow. Sorry, if you'll forgive the expression. Yeah. yeah. Because you are deathly nervous. You're afraid that you're going to be ousted as a quote unquote fake. Uh, you're afraid of impending judgment. But as soon as those layers start to come off as you listen to other people's shares and being in self-study, studying the big book together, you actually realize that you've got nothing to be afraid of. And it does get emotional. It sure is. As there's a Lord in heaven and he's my savior and my judge, it was the exact same thing for me. You can't hold the tears back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, for me, probably the first three weeks in sobriety, I would sit in rooms with my arms folded, oh, sit yeah. back. As did I. So angry, so angry that I had to be there. No one was making me, first of all. You know? um, just in such judgment almost of, of hearing my story. When people would share and share something I'd done or something very similar, share, I couldn't. I couldn't get past that bitterness and anger and almost feeling of, I am not going to let this guard down because I don't want to let you in. I don't, you won't even believe what a mess I really am. So I'm mm. just going to sit here quietly. Oh yeah. When I finally in like the third week, finally shared and those words came out of my mouth. My name is Saya and I'm alcoholic. It was like, uh, like, I couldn't believe it just came out. Like you've been hit and in I, the sternum. Yeah, and I didn't know what to do with that. Like, you know, when I hear people today say that that's not my identity, if I don't, I think for me, again, my sobriety must come first so that everything else in my life lasts. So if I don't lead with who I believe I am, what I've accepted that I am and what I know that I'm working to become a better exactly. person, then, I, then I'm then i not being fully present and fully transparent. And, and really- transparent, yeah. Yeah, and, and if I'm working to be a better me, I can only do that by really sharing. And when I say those words every time in a meeting, I, 
it still does something to me. And I, I now say I am a grateful recovering alcoholic because- High five, girl. When I heard that from people, when I heard them say grateful, I'm like, what in the hell could you possibly be grateful for? You're sitting in a basement of a church with people who we haven't met half of them. And, and how can you be grateful to be here? And what I've learned is that I am so grateful that I have been given the opportunity to live on the recovery side of addiction. I no longer have to live in that pit of despair as long as I wake up and do this work every single day, regardless. Uh, absolutely, I can't agree with you more. And it becomes a badge of honor. And I said this to a group of friends of mine, this will be on the podcast that precedes yours, uh, which will hopefully become a regular segment, that we don't think the way normies do. and. This is just my perception. I still believe there's a big misunderstanding of recovery as a whole. Yes, that we are addicts and we have had a torrid love affair, if that is the right uh, archetype, with substance abuse and with alcoholism. But why did we do it? Was it because of the taste? No. Mm -hmm. Well, 50-50. But it was because of we wanted to shut down something that caused us great harm. And now, it's not that we think we are superior, but we obviously don't deserve the merit of being classified as inferior when we're actually working 10 to 20 times as hard to try and help others, to get them out of their pit of despair. So there is a, a very nasty uh, classification, and a friend of mine made me attend on this, that it's nine times out of 10 self-projection, and I agree with you. I'll carry my badge of honor and state that I am a grateful alcoholic and I'm a grateful addict because like to say to uh, repeat what I said three sentences ago, like that, I can fall back into my old habits and it is easy as pie. We work very fucking hard to keep our heads above water. And yeah, we deserve absolutely. That. And honestly, I wouldn't have it any other way today, you know? I mean, I, I was thinking about that last Saturday when I didn't have my kids and I got I got to just have quiet alone time. And I, I literally spent over five hours working on recovery. I went to four meetings, I spoke on a Zoom meeting and I met with my sponsor. And my heart was so full that night just so full i felt so good because i'm i'm i could feel myself working to be better than i was the day before not better than the person across the street from me who still drinks not better than the person living under the bridge but better than who i used to be and I wear my, obviously, I wear my Sober AF shirts. I, I have a Sober Mom shirt. Um, oh, Sober Mom Squad. Yeah, I wear those all so over. You know Jen and you know Jessica and you know um, uh, Blonde Lady. I also had on the podcast, her name escapes me now. Celeste Vaughn. Oh, yes, yes. You know, all those girls. Yeah, they're good friends yeah. of mine. Yeah, it's... And they've also been on the pod. Yeah, it's just really, you know, I think for me, it's, I, I, the fact is that I wasn't, 
I wasn't ashamed when I would be out with friends at the bar, Neither literally was I. tripping over myself, um, dropping my phone in a margarita, you know? Was- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I wondered the next morning why it didn't work. I'm like, oh, it smells like tequila. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you dropped so, your smartphone and <laughs> Yep, I sure did. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was one of the many times. Movies. Yep. <laughs> Those things that you hear other people do and you're like, Oh yeah. I didn't do that, but I did do this, you know. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, I won't ever, honestly, I won't ever be ashamed to be in recovery. And Neither will I. When, I. when I choose to live out loud and share my story and talk with my kids openly about recovery and about the, the genetic piece of all of this, you know, my dad died 35 years sober. I never saw him drink. He died five days before I had a year of sobriety. And during that time of finding out that he passed away, going to his memorial, the thought of drinking did not cross my mind once. And I realized that it was because of the foundation I had really built at that point as, as well as I could with what I had. But a year into it, I had laid a foundation of people who I would reach out to and who would reach out to me the work that I was doing, um, meetings I was going to, and I knew if I just did the next right thing, everything would be okay. And that meant getting my kids to school that morning and getting to a meeting and crying and letting people love me right where I was. Mm. And for me, I think a big part of it is that I try and I, I've tried to work on, but I, I have this wall up sometimes still in sobriety where I'll, I'll say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to let you in too close just in case. Of course, which is a good thing. It is, it is. But what I've learned is that if I want these true authentic and real relationships and recovery, I, I need to let that guard down a little and of course, let people in. And when I share parts of my story, vulnerably and openly about being a sober mom or any of that, I I can only help develop those relationships more. And I've had so many friends from high school back in the Chicago area reach out to me when I share things on Instagram or Facebook and reach out and say, I, I'm really struggling or I have a friend who um, could use some help or I've been sober for 30 days and just things like that, or I never knew that you were that you struggled as much as you did. And I think the stigma around addiction and alcoholism in general is only going to be decreased and lessened. And Let's the hope. joy of Let's recovery hope. will only increase the more we talk about it. Living sober and living in recovery. Is not boring or not at all, or unhappy or you know, gloomy or you know, any of those things. It is 
completely the opposite for me it's and far beyond anything that I could have even imagined. Honestly, when I say that, when I say I get to live a life today that I couldn't even have dreamed up, it's because I really do. Right. Absolutely. What a gift that is. And you're right. That is a gift. And if there's one thing that I enjoy about living my life of recovery, look, let's just lay a disclaimer on this. There are still going to be days where you feel completely down in the dumps. Remember, this is a disease. And I'm saying this to the audience. You know this as well as I say it. It's a disease. And with any mental health affliction, what's going to happen? It's going to be like this, up and down, up and down, up and down. Some days more than others, some days lesser than others. But that said, I digress. If there's one thing that I love about living a life of recovery is just having a sense of lightheartedness where you can laugh at yourself. Mm-hmm. We, <laughs> we can look back on, on the days of yore and you... <laughs> now you've got me. <laughs> <laughs> Were you t- <laughs> Were you dropped your- <laughs> Okay, you can't edit this part out. <laughs> I'm not going to edit this out. I'm, I'm keeping this in. <laughs> Where you dropped your sm- your smile. <laughs> Imagine my dismay the next morning. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember getting sober initially. Okay, I'll level the playing field with you. Um, (laughs) When I just got sober, I was a five-month dry alcoholic. Uh, And then afterwards, I began... uh, actively attending meetings six months later afterward because I had a health affliction in between. I've been pulled over by the cops once or twice and I've nearly been hauled off to jail in my active dark days. But how come is it the moment that I decide to put down drugs and I decide to put down alcohol that I could continually harassed by policemen for no reason whatsoever? <laughs> <laughs> so, it, <coughs> so it becomes like a comedy show and you look back in your life in that sense and you realize wow was this me should i call judd apatow so he can start writing a script using my premise you know you don't take yourself so seriously but you do in all circumstances, depending on the type of person that you are, depending on the type of personality that you have, your understanding of the big book, because I think the big book is multilateral, much like with the Bible, if that should be your your choice of, mm-hmm. of, of escape and serving your higher power. Mine, exactly the same. I'm also a Christian. Um, my Bible is my everything. My big book is my everything. Um, and in so doing, that's my bedrock. But then other people can be a lot more different. And why did I bring this up? The train has left the station. Oh, yes. But for some people, they can be welcoming out of the fact that even though they are sober, they will still be in the company of others who, st- who also still use alcohol in this case. But I'm assuming you and I are alike in the fact that we are completely abstinent from it. And we'll go through all the measures of staying away, but yet we don't judge. 
So you learn to be, you learn yourself for the very first time what you'll allow and what you won't allow and with boundaries and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But what I also love about what you do, um, you, your Instagram handle is not just an Instagram handle. I'm going to be very honest with you. It's a, it's a diary. It's an electronic diary. And I love your transparency in that. And often it is motivating and often it's very heart wrenching because you're so honest in those entries a lot of times. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. I think for me, I started, um, I started sharing about sobriety when I was about two and a half years sober. I got into a relationship when I was five months sober. Um, with someone oh, clever. Else. Very clever. I know. You know, Chris, I I always share with, <laughs> with women First I work with. the margarita, now a relationship at five months? Yes, I know. I was on like this winning streak, so I just kept going. <laughs> so I always tell people that list that they give you of suggestions of things not to do, I think I went through and did all of those. So oh, I was in this relationship and... I just destructive, I'm guessing. He was very quiet about his recovery and I I struggled with being that way. I that wasn't me and it wasn't because I am some boisterous extrovert because what I've learned in sobriety is that when I was an extrovert it was alcohol induced and I right. think that I am a a quieter introvert but i'm a, you know i'm an extrovert in certain an situations extroverted introvert yes really i think depending on where i am and my comfort level of of my or surroundings ambivert. i'm exactly the same yes i mean i can talk to like this kind of talking with you doesn't make me nervous at all talking in front of a room of 200 about recovery doesn't make me nervous because it's my story and I, I have the honor to share it with someone. So I really didn't, I, I think I was about two years sober and I, it might've been right around my two year and I just posted something about sobriety. And all of a sudden I started getting messages. I didn't know you were sober. How long have you been sober? What are you doing? How are you staying sober? And it just kind of the more that I shared, the the lighter I felt. And it felt like either I'm going to, again, it, not every day is rainbows and unicorns. I went through, mm -hmm. honestly, I went through hell in my first year of sobriety between the divorce. I had no job. I had no money. I was trying to go back to school. I was getting out of a 12 year marriage and into a new relationship, uh, trying to get my kids oriented to Colorado, all of that stuff. Then my dad died. And then years two and three, I went through a lot of addiction related things with my oldest. He was missing for three days. He was in and out of juvenile detention. He was in residential treatment programs. He was all of that. This was and your oldest, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And today he's 19 and he's doing great. And fantastic. And again, drinking didn't cross my mind through any of that. There was one, you know, someone asked me recently about what I 
what I would consider a spiritual experience I've had. And I, I think one of the most profound ones to me was he was literally missing for 72 hours and I had no clue where he was, no idea. And I drove up uh, to the town just north of me by myself. I hadn't slept in I think probably 18 hours or something. I just, I was exhausted. And I had friends helping with my younger two. And I got a message that he was in this neighborhood. So I went and parked there and started walking through the neighborhood and I couldn't find him. And I got a message saying this person might know. So I sent that person a message and I kept walking, looking around, calling his name. And she sent me a message and said, he is at the Walmart down the road from you right now. If you have any chance of getting him now before he hops on a bus and gets out of town, you better go. So I ran back to my car, went to start it and it didn't turn over. And it was a newer car and I just sat there and and I don't know what it was except God literally opening my hands. But I, I sat there and my hands just opened on the steering wheel and I just started sobbing and I said, God, if he is there, I've got to get there now. I don't know how else I'm going to do this, but I can't do this alone. And I think that was one of the first times through that whole trial with him that I said those words out loud. I can't do this alone. And I just cried and I said, I have minutes to get there or he's gone. I know it. And I went to start the car. It started right away. And I drove there. I followed him through Walmart for 20 minutes on the phone with the police while they were blocking both doors and coming to get him. And he had no idea I was behind him until they said, turn around and put your hands behind your back. And he did and he saw me and I just lost it. And I think that moment sitting in the car was one of those like reminders for me along this journey that, that my higher power, the God of my understanding, isn't the spare tire I have in my trunk. Mm -hmm. I, I need that to be a relationship that is ongoing. It isn't just what I need to do. It's all the time. And I think that was a reminder for me during that, that when I reach out, when I am open and when I open myself up, I get exactly what I need, even if it's not what I wanted. And of course, in so now terms. Yeah. Right. And in so many different areas of my life, it's happened that way even since then. So how long has it been since that occasion? About three, about three years. He, that was between 15, about 15, 14 to 15 and 17. So he got out of his last place January of 2020. Wow. And how's his track record been since then? He he hasn't gotten in trouble at all. He honestly he is he is doing so well. Both of you are very open unto one another about your rec recovery. Did there ever come a yeah. point where you both said, "Let's recover together. Let's work together to build each other up." Yeah, and you know today, especially people around here who um, who really held me up through all of that because I still had these younger two to 
get to school and help with homework and communicate with and and show up as their mom, even when I was hurting. And what I learned was that it was okay for them to see me crying. Sometimes they would come into my bedroom and I would, I remember once my daughter came into my bedroom and I was barely catching my breath crying. And she said, is it about Jack? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, is he okay? And I said, I think he will be. And she said, I think so too, mom. And I think for them to see me hurting and then see me doing well and thriving and pushing forward no matter what has really helped them see that in little things in their life, they don't have to get stuck, that I can help, we can help. And, you know, my oldest will send me text messages randomly and say, thank you for everything you helped me with because I did not oh, ever enable same. him. I, I stood in front of the court the very last time he got placed and they wanted to send him home. He had started a fire the night before in my basement with my two little ones. And the judge wanted to send him home and I stood up and my entire body was shaking. And I said, I have two little kids that I have to protect and I don't feel like he's safe enough to come home right now. And it like simultaneously broke my heart and felt so freeing at the same time because coming from a mom in recovery, I knew that the only way he was going to get help was going to figure out that he needed the help. And if I enabled that, he would never be able to figure that out. Not anytime soon, at least, and perhaps not before it was too late. Mm. So I, I chose intentionally with a lot of counsel from a lot of friends in recovery to never enable that and hold him accountable, just like I needed to be held accountable too. Ah, makes sense because you often have also put on your posts that you didn't get sober for your kids. It's entirely unfair. You got sober for you. You got sober yeah. for you and you're trying yeah. to pass that torch, that, 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 uh, uh, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, you're trying to pass that same level of thinking unto yeah. Jack so he can be independent enough to make that choice for himself. It's a very noble statement. But now let's talk about life after recovery. We've covered the bit where uh, it took a divorce and plus also a good stretch of time in your recovery, uh, facing these challenges, now sober and realizing that you couldn't do it yourself. I've got to be very honest with you and I'm just assuming this. <clears throat> My business is I read people. Duality, deception, body language, it's the stuff that is commonplace in mass communications with which I'm involved in. So the very first thing that I do, obviously, I read body language. I, I analyze what people say and what people do. I'm assuming you've got a very full plate. I'm assuming you're now currently a single mother, raising three children. You're trying to be financially independent. So <laughs> it's not easy, I'm guessing. But beyond that, now you're also taking on extra responsibility in the form of service unto others, which you've also spoken about at length. How does your frame of mind work in that sense of you have to be in 36 different places or often at the same time? Hmm. Uh, 
Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, frankly, I was I could feel my blood pressure rising as you were going through all of those things. So was I wrong? Um, <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why I was like, oh yeah, maybe that is a lot. But I think the easiest way to say that is um, my mom went back to school for her master's in social work when I was in first grade. Okay. And. I, my younger sister and I, I remember holding her hand as we would hop up on the train and take it down to Chicago. She went to the University of Illinois at Chicago and she graduated with high honors. And she had six rascals running around. (laughs) And she would say to me when I became a mom and, and I was working full time and I was a single mom and I was trying to be everything to everyone, she would say things like, it's okay to say no to a good thing. And you can't ever pour from an empty cup. And all of those pieces that that are all those cliches. And what I know works well for me today is that, and again, I share this also, that I have to take care of myself first so that I can help other people. Of course. And that starts, First thing in the morning, when I get up, have quiet time, get to the gym. You know, everything feels very time or, you know, time constricted. Time dependent, yeah. Yes, exactly. Time dependent. And it really is. I have to be back here in the morning by 6.30 so we can be out the door to get my youngest to school and work by 7.30. Mm. So all of those things... I think I thrive on that schedule now because it helps me stay in in my routine and in my self-care and then I'm able to give and grow and learn. But I'm betting and, more often than not there can be a span in the works that throws your entire routine off kilter. Absolutely. I work in home care and so it is not a nine to five business. We have clients who are 24 hour clients and I'll get a call. Sometimes it's happened a lot. I'll get a call at nine o'clock saying, can you go cover an overnight shift? And after working all day and. But I, I, yeah, but I think for me, that's part of um, who I am too is. I love what I do. I get to help people towards their end of life in my job. Mm. And then I get to help people just in recovery in general to live their best life now. So I hear what you're saying. It's a perfect comparison. It's a perfect comparison. I, I think though, for me getting to a place where it isn't coming from a people pleasing perspective, but it's coming from what fills my heart? What what fills my soul? What am I passionate about? And, and just, your talents are being used. Right. And, and what, you know, I, years ago, I had to take a class for a job that, that I had, and it was learning your um, spiritual gifts. And mine were leadership, discernment, and teaching. And so I tried to use those in in everyday life. And... I just registered actually to go back this summer for my chemical dependency counselor license and then also um, for my personal training certificate. So we'll talk about I, your athletic side as well. In a yeah. So I think I, I, 
I think my my heart and my passion is helping people in fitness and recovery. And when I'm able and given the opportunities to put those two together, it it fills me up more than it could possibly be a gift to anyone else. And yeah, absolutely. I think the bottom line really for me is the time management part is being able to say, no, I can't without giving an explanation, without feeling like I have to come up with a story with and without feeling bad about it. Yeah. Just say, no, I can't. Absolutely. And, and, and I still struggle with that to tell you the God's honest truth. Yeah, I think we all do, though. And I honestly, I think being in recovery, I feel like I was told, you know, you don't ever say no when people ask you to be of service. But I, I also can't say no to myself in this at, at the same in the same breath. I can't say yes to you and no to me. Naturally, um, you and I have a friend by the name of Alex Talbot, who made me aware of the fact that she was using her recovery in. Uh, uh, the work that she does, she's involved in government in Montreal, and she got the opportunity to be a competition. She's a natural athlete. I'm also starting to learn the difference between bodybuilding and, and, and natu natural athleticism. Or athleticism. Yeah, sounds right. Um, one of my heroes is William Smith, the actor who was in the miniseries Rich Man, Poor Man. A lot of people thought Arnold Schwarzenegger was the first athlete to cross over into mainstream filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Nonsense. Will it, Bill did it all. I mean, he was a 31 for 1 amateur boxer, a champion weightlifter in the Air Force, uh, AAU athlete deluxe, uh, could throw the discus at a distance of 151 feet when the AAU record at the time was 150. But he always used his success for the benefit of other natural athletes in the sense of it takes hard work to excel profession-wise. And the big problem in bodybuilding is often you have to take chemicals into the bloodstream that can do you harm in the long run. So that's where I think the trend of nat natural athleticism started. And how has, and you mentioned as well in your childhood that... Um, you were involved in various sorts of sports. Now, I wasn't a sport type, but I did um, judo for a couple of years, but I had to stop because of asthma. Uh, I was a quite a quite a good chess player. But now, as of recent uh, recent times, I felt the itch to uh, to work out. Got involved in lifting weights in college. Well, my one uh, lecturer was a fantastic fantastic weightlifter, natural athlete as well, had that very slim build, but with the arms as big as tree trunks extending to, I think, roughly between 16 to 17 inches. But uh, that high that you get after that good first 45-minute session and those endorphins that get released into the bloodstream actually makes me more productive throughout the day and keeps my mind off the substances. Mm -hmm. Same feeling for you, I'm guessing? Yeah, I think uh, absolutely. When I first started really working out um, again in sobriety, I I think it was almost to fill that void, uh, time void. First of all, all of a sudden it was like I have a million hours in the day. You know, I don't <laughs> I don't know how I ever spent that much time drinking, but 
you know, that's neither here nor there. So I, I think when I really first started working out, it helped me fill that time. It helped me build my confidence. It helped me make, it made me feel stronger. And I, I tell a lot of women at the gym today, you know, I'll, I'll say that's, that's really why I work out. I don't work out so that for, for your idea of what I should look like or for, for your affirmation, I work out so that I can feel better and healthier mm. and just stronger. And, and again, I think it all starts internal and then I'm able to show my kids that part too. And mm. that's really, you know, you said it earlier. I think that's really why I always say my kids will never and can never be my why. It is not their burden to bear. Their shoulders were never built to carry that load. Mm. Mm. They, they were not born into this world to be my reason to stay sober because heaven forbid I ever relapsed. I cannot imagine how they would feel. I'm sure. And I think that that's really my my crutch for, and, and point for saying that is, it's not, there's, how I'm doing is not dependent on how my kids are doing. They have to see that I can be happy, I can work through things, I can be sad, keep going, and no matter what, I don't have to drink over it. But... They also, after I am able to show up as that sober mom, after I'm able to show up for myself, I can be their sober mom. And when I come back, you know, that's why, that's why my routine really works well for me because no one is awake. Even when I get home from the gym, there are some mornings where my youngest will meet me at the door and, you know, he's letting the dog out, but usually I'm back before he's awake and we're getting ready to go for the day. And they know that that's my time. That's my mind, body, and soul time. That's my time to fuel myself so that I can go on with the day. And I, I just feel happier and healthier. I, honestly, I said to someone last night, I'll be 40 in October. And I said, what? I, I said, I feel like I'm so much happier and healthier and honestly stronger than I've ever been in my entire life. And he Hold was on. like, he was like, you're, yeah, I think so. you're turning 40. <laughs> yeah. You're pulling my leg. I don't believe yeah. it. No. Yes. I had my oldest at 20. He'll be 20 in December. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll motivate you. Otherwise you're not, yeah. 40. you're 20 yeah. years old with 20 years experience. We stop aging right. at 20 or 21. The rest of the, yeah. for the rest of our lives, it's just experience. Right. I know my, my dad used to say, you know, it beats the alternative, right? You know, whenever he'd have a birthday, people are like, oh gosh, you're getting older. He's like, it beats the alternative. What, <laughs> either I'm dead or I'm getting older. Isn't that the goal? You know? <laughs> yeah. God bless him, darling. Yeah. And you know what? I must really also give you the kudos in the sense that I love your smile because of your gratitude in life. It plays out in your smile extending from ear to ear. You've got a lot to be proud of. 
but I know that you'd rather be in gratitude in that regard. You've had so much happen to you, a lot that came from happenstance, mistakes, in other words, and a lot of things that you didn't ask for. But you put on your armor and you said, bring it, bring it. And you are an inspiration to many people out there, men, women, children alike. And I think you should really give yourself a tap on the shoulder in that regard. Mm. Let's wrap it up, Sarah. When looking back at your life from then until now, and if there's anybody listening, what words of sage advice or motivation rather would you give someone if they are, let's not say sober curious, but in a corner themselves and they want to get free, what would it be? Uh, I think so many things come to mind because I was told so many helpful things early in sobriety. Uh, several of them are, um, and I think what has motivated me most recently to sign up to go back to school this summer is that it's never too late to, you know, it's that quote, it's never too late to be what you always wanted to be. And my mom was proof of that for me. And I get to be proof of that for my kids. I, I think I look back at my first days of sobriety and think, thank God I didn't give up. And if there's a time when I sit in, in reflection and I'm able to kind of give myself that well done, that's where it comes from. I am, thank you for not giving up. And I think I, when I can, my, I had a sponsor early in sobriety who would say that to me, you need to write down some good things about yourself. Mm. You're always willing to tell people good things, what a good person they are, a good listener. What are you good to yourself at doing? And I remember the first time I looked in the mirror and I said, I'm so glad you didn't give up. And I, honestly, it just wrecks, it, it wrecks me just to say that out loud because I actually meant it and I actually believed it. And hearing those words in early sobriety, no matter what, there is not a thing today that a drink will ever make better for me, ever. Only worse, because it will never be one drink, ever. And I know that I have another relapse in me somewhere. I know that because that's the nature of this disease. Oh yeah, no I doubt. Do, and I cannot guarantee that I have another recovery in me. And I am not willing to risk my life on that chance. And I'm and gonna be there with you in spirit, praying right. for you. You and, and I are going that, to charge that battlefield together because we are in yeah. this together. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that's why I work so hard every day, whether it's a good day or a bad day. I don't know that at 4 a.m. when my alarm goes off. I know that I choose how I react to the day. And those things were helpful for me in early sobriety, no matter what storm was forming around me and there felt like a million in early sobriety. I can calm the storm inside me. I can say the serenity prayer a million times. I can take a deep breath and I can pick up the 400 pound phone and call someone. Mm. And that's what works for me today too. Amen. 
Saya, <laughs> you are my hero doll. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I loved hearing your story. Keep putting the best foot forward. Thank you. I hope to see you soon. See you soon. Love you lots. Good night. He looked in the mirror and his eyes were clear for the first time in a while. having a cuppa for this week. We hope you enjoyed this leg of the journey. Until the next time we meet, tell your friends and write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.